Welcome to our podcast, Leading Past Limits. We share lessons learned from the hard-won experience of mission-driven leaders so that you expand your horizons as a leader that places service before self. I'm Kumar Kibble, a leadership coach and the principal at GuideQuest. I've been passionate about developing leaders since graduating from West Point more than 30 years ago and have led high-performing teams as a military officer, special agent, diplomat, government, and corporate executive. Now I partner with leaders and teams as a coach to help unlock their potential and maximize their impact. In this first season, join me in learning from entrepreneurs, CEOs, Army generals, police chiefs, war heroes, thought leaders, and more. Be sure to subscribe and don't miss out on lessons learned from the real world School of Hard Knocks. Our guest today is Chief Chris Moore. Chris is a principal at the firm Brooks Bodden Moore, where he and his team serve as trusted advisors to law enforcement, public safety, homeland security and intelligence practitioners, and solution providers. He has over 34 years of public safety experience, including assignments as a police officer, firefighter, and emergency medical technician. In 2013, after rising through every rank of the San Jose Police Department, Chris retired as chief of police of the 10th largest city in the United States. His career included service as a White House Fellow and Counsel to U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno. He was honored as a Fulbright Fellow and studied police accountability at New Scotland Yard and the London School of Economics. Chris is also an attorney and active member of the State Bar of California. Chris, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Kumar. So we're going to begin with what motivated you to pursue a career in public safety? So it started pretty much in high school. Um, I was pretty much athletic and played a lot of different sports. Uh, and always enjoyed working outside, working in, in team settings. And then uh, in the town I grew up on, they had a volunteer fire department. And a couple of my friends were in that. And it was something that looked very interesting. So I got the bug. Ended up working a couple of seasons as a seasonal and volunteer firefighter. And then went off to do my undergraduate work at Berkeley and recognized that uh, they didn't have a fire department over there. And so I started working as a non-sworn member of the of the police department. And then that went on to just last another 34 years. But, you know, the reality for me was, is that I, if you think about it, I love working outdoors. I love working with people. Uh, you know, law enforcement, public safety is a people business. If you don't like it, you're in the wrong business. And if you're not enjoying yourself, you're doing something wrong. Um, you're always getting paid to do the right thing, which I always thought was intriguing. And uh, you get to see an immediate impact. If there's a reason that I really love this profession is, Look, you can write checks, you can be doing administrative work, it's all important, but at the end of the day, if you can positively impact somebody's life and, you know, right then and there and do something good, uh, it's a great sense of satisfaction. That's why I think a lot of police officers and firefighters do what they do. do you, there's always this friendly competition between like firefighters and police, and you've, you've served in both worlds. Do you find that there's a, a particular types of personalities that are drawn to one versus the other? I think... Both services are, you know, those who occupy those positions are motivated uh, in the public service. Again, you have to be a people person in either one. Uh, Those who work in law enforcement, I mean, we tend to get a little more heat um, because everybody loves a firefighter and not everybody loves (laughs) law enforcement. Um, You know, I can make all the jokes I want about how, you know, they're asleep in the firehouse while we're out there in the middle of the pouring rain. And I've done that before to to give them a hard time. At the end of the day, they're always there to help us and they provide a service. So uh, I think... Um, you know, I think it's harder to be a police officer, certainly today, than it is yeah. a firefighter. But I yeah. think uh, I honor both uh, for the service they provide. Yeah. And I'd like to talk about kind of the, the unique challenges facing uh, police officers today and in, um, in the current climate. But 
What was what was a top challenge you faced at the beginning of your law enforcement career? So mine was a little bit different just because I there was a strong family ethic. Um, you know, there's 10 kids in my family and that everybody was going to go off and graduate, get their undergraduate degrees and and do well. Uh, I was working full time pretty much since I was 18, 17, 18 years old uh, in the public safety field and trying to pay for my education and at the same time, you know, get a good quality education. So what it came down to is this, both my undergrad, graduate and law school, I did while I was working. The challenge mm-hmm. is uh, time management and, you know, right. missing out on some of the things I would, would have otherwise done. But I recognize that in order to to lead in these organizations, you really needed some of the credentials uh, that I ended up getting in school. Um, not always popular amongst the rank and file to have somebody, uh, you know, spending all that time at school. But again, learning what you can while you're working at the same time, uh, you're not sleeping very much, but you're going to school and learning a lot there too. So that was the biggest challenge for me is time management and getting it all done in the course of a 24 hour day. Now it strikes me though, that you're probably, um, you know, I would imagine one of relatively few senior executives in, in public safety that have a law degree. What was important about the law degree to you? So the, the answer to the first part of that, there are actually quite a few uh, folks that, that went to law school um, after you know, being in the profession for a while. And I think we all have the same thing is that, look, it's going to law school, they teach you how to think basically and how to react. Um, you know, we're working in a very structured society as, as far as law enforcement goes. And you want to make sure that you understand the, the legal aspects, not only, you know, in the court process and the prosecution and, and also on the defense side, but just general knowledge on how to manage people and how to yeah. large organizations. So um, for as, you know, I, I am, I know a number of major city chiefs and sheriffs yeah. that are, are lawyers as well. I'll just say this is that I, I wanted to do it. It's something I always wanted to do when I was an undergrad. I had a lot of friends that became lawyers and I said, heck, if they could do it, I know I could do it. Yeah. Uh, so, and it's helped. It really is. I wouldn't have been a White House fellow. I wouldn't have been all of these right. things had I not had that credential, I don't think. Was there ever a time that you thought about uh, quitting where it just felt like too much with family and professional life and all the demands on your time? No, early on, that's why I always tell folks who are trying to finish school and, and are working full time is just get it done. Uh, stay focused because as kids come along and things like that, it just makes it that much harder. So I'm glad I, I finished all my schooling earlier on than later on. And uh, that's my advice to all of those who are in those scenarios is just stay focused, get it done, and then you'll never have to do it again. Yeah. Well, what did you believe at the beginning of your career that you feel differently about now? That's pretty clear. When I started in law enforcement, sort of in the late 70s, early 80s, um, people respected law enforcement, generally speaking. Um, there, there's certainly bad apples in any large organization, and law enforcement is no exception. Uh, I would say this, though, generally speaking, you put your uniform on every day, you went out to try to do the right thing. Uh, people respected that, and, uh, and you felt that every day that you were out there serving the public. Today, completely different story, as we've talked about earlier. Um, it, it's really difficult to recruit people today to come into this profession. It's so vital that we do get good people that are still service oriented that come into this. But with what they're facing today, uh, it's it's really a tragedy. It's it's difficult. I don't know if I have the answer here. I've, we've got suggestions on how to maintain the ranks, but uh, it's getting harder and harder. So uh, I just that's changed dramatically in, in in the 30, 40 years that I've been in the business. So if you were going to put your finger on one or two kind of just macro environmental factors that have shifted the landscape in terms of that that shift in respect, I mean, what would you point to? I don't know if it's any one or two, but um, a couple of things that 
directly impacted is, uh, is social media and, and people putting out videos and, that are taken out of context. Look, use of force, I don't care how justified it is. And you know, there are many times when I've used force, I know I was completely justified. It doesn't look good on television or on, yeah. on a camera. It just doesn't. You know. Right. Uh, so that said, you know, without some commentary, some background or context, uh, people start to believe that the police are running, running rampant, just you know, injuring people when they're uh, a great example. Is that where we had an officer shoot somebody who had a knife on another person? I mean, it, that person's life was in jeopardy, and right. it's certainly within policy. And yet, people are considering an execution. It just doesn't doesn't right. Compute. Right. And, you know, I think it also needs to be placed in the context of how many, um, what is it, millions of encounters that police officers have with uh, the public, uh, you know, each year? I mean, um, every year, every yeah. year, we, you know, if you think of the number of times each individual officer goes out on the street and be it just a contact uh, on a car stop or in a coffee shop or for a call for service, it is, it's millions of times. And, and the number of times where force is actually deployed is minuscule. However, yeah. it seem to get the most attention. Um, and there is now to be clear here, like there's a lot of things that have gone on in this country that should not have gone on. And police reform, in my opinion, uh, is warranted. It's necessary. It's desired. It's it really should happen. The problem we have is, is that the narrative has been, I think, hijacked somewhat. Uh, and look, I, I put police reform into three different buckets. You know, one is things we should have done you know, 10, 20 years ago that some departments across the country have been actively engaged in. And yeah. there are some reforms in the second bucket that would be painful for the profession, but probably necessary. And with the right tweaks, uh, we could all live with it. And I think everybody would be better off. And then there's the third bucket where you're seeing today in the discussions uh, right now between the Senate and the House uh, on, you know, issues like qualified immunity. Qualified immunity, in my opinion, is one of those bedrock issues that if you're going to get people to come into this profession and try and do the right thing with all the right training and then something goes south and they're going to hold them. You know, liable to the point, personally liable, where they're going to lose their house, they're going to lose, you know, any income they had in their families, they're going to lose their job. Uh, why would somebody want to go out there, do all the right things, and still lose their job and lose their families? Right. Uh, so anyway, I think there's a compromise coming, but it's just it's tough to see some of these uh, discussions going on. Yeah, and you know, a, a little later, I'd like to ask you a little bit about that second bucket and things that you think that uh, that would would help to advance the profession, sure. but but. At this point, let me just ask you, so, you, you know, you at the beginning of your career, were there key influencers or mentors that helped you along the way as you progressed? There were. I, I was, you know, very fortunate to work in, in organizations that really quality you know, leaders. Um, you know, there were there sure of folks that didn't uh, didn't do so well. But I tell you, I had the opportunity to learn from some of the best. The one I would highlight uh as the, the best and the most important influence in my career was uh, Chief Joseph McNamara. Joe McNamara came out of NYPD, was a captain, went to Harvard, got his PhD, became the chief in uh, Kansas City back in the 70s, I think in 73. They had an officer-involved shooting literally the first couple of weeks where a young African-American was killed, and he went to the funeral and caused an incredible ruckus in that town. Uh, he lasted three years there, but he was a man ahead of his times about, you know, concerning community policing and you know, how police departments should reflect, you know, the, the community that it serves, all of those things uh, back in the 70s. He came to San Jose in 76, stayed with us for 15 plus years. Um, that's one of the reasons I went to San Jose as Joe McNamara and uh, was fortunate. His his wife and he had asked when he was dying that uh, that I actually speak among with others, uh, among others, to speak at his funeral. And mm. um, so this is one of those people that don't come along very often in the profession. Uh, and they're, they're out there, but there aren't very many of them. 
what is it about NYPD as far as an incubator that seems to send out um, folks throughout the country that go on to serve in, in significant roles? So a couple of factors. Number one is pure size. I mean, it, there's no other department like it. You know, L.A., Chicago come close, but they're not. It's just huge numbers where you're going to attract talent from a lot of places, not just in New York City. Uh, they're bright. Uh, those who want to learn, those who want to study the profession, rise to the organization. So if you're coming out of the top ranks of the NYPD, uh, you can pretty much go anywhere and do anything um, mm-hmm. in the profession. So uh, some of it's pure numbers, some of it's leadership of the organization. Again, if, you know, if you have a good commissioner or somebody who's really worked hard to develop the people underneath them, and I think they do a good job of that, um, you're likely to get even more good leaders that uh, hopefully uh, still serve the city of New York, but go on to do other great things, if not there, someplace else. Right, right. Well, um, I mean, law enforcement's a tough job. Uh, we, we go through a number of uh, trying experiences and demanding circumstances and, and, and life or death situations. Um, one of the things that, that we try to promote at GuideQuest are programs to promote well-being and resiliency. Um, how do you remain resilient during uh, adver- adversity, during tough times? You know, I've had my share of tough times, both professionally and personally, and the message I send to those who ask me that question is stay focused. If you are clear on your mission, uh, try to leave all of the externalities out because they're going to be there, whether you like it or not. Some of them, sometimes it's really bad and it's very, you know, the high pressure scenarios, either personally, family wise, uh, stay focused on the mission. And if you do that with the p- good people around you, uh, you'll get through it. Um, you may have a few scars on the backside of it, but I think generally speaking, those who succeed in, in, in leadership roles understand you can segregate those things out. You can segment them and say, look, I'll get to those. They're important. You need to take care of yourself. That's too, absolutely important. You know, work out, do whatever you need to do to, to reduce your stress level, but stay focused on the mission. You'll be all right. Yeah. Well, what was your, uh, you talked about leadership. What was, what was your first leadership, formal leadership role in public safety? So, Mind you, I started early, like 17 in the fire department. I had the opportunity to learn from a a number of folks, but I became a first line supervisor, patrol supervisor at age 23, uh, which is really young. And uh, although I've been around for five or six years learning from different people how to lead and how not to lead, it was interesting for me at that age to be supervising people twice my age or or greater. And at the same time, and it happens in the military too, with all young officers coming through with very senior uh, enlisted folks, uh, they, if you're out there trying to take care of your people and you are, you know, study the profession and you work it competently, you're not going to know everything at a young age, but if you're smart enough to know that piece and seek out the help of others around you, uh, they'll respect you for it. And if you have a good sense of judgment, uh, you'll get accepted fairly quickly, which I was, but I will tell you, you know, at that young age when it was a little, a uh, little intimidating, not, not too bad. I actually was pretty comfortable, but I just didn't have the experience that a lot of people had. And they all stepped up when I asked. I asked, you know, look, what do you guys think? And they, all, they always came up with good answers and they appreciated the fact that I asked and didn't assume that I knew everything. Yeah, you know, you're touching on a really key point. I mean, when I when I reported into the 82nd Airborne Division as a 21-year-old uh, infantry lieutenant, um, I, you know, the NCOs had jumped into Panama. They were veterans of a, a couple combat uh, actions. And... Um, 
I, you know, I, I, my, it was a humility is kind of the point that kind of comes up is, is knowing what you don't know. And, and, you know, and I asked the NCOs, please, your job is to make me a good Lieutenant. <laughs> help me, help me, uh, you know, not screw it up. Mission first people always help me, yep. <laughs> help me figure out how to, how to grow into this role. <laughs> and, and obviously they did a great job. Uh, and I, ah. no, I think they appreciate it. They always do. And yeah. I've talked to a number of folks over the years and they said, look, they always hated these, you know, these young, lieutenants coming in and thinking that they know everything straight out of the academy or out of, uh, you know, their, um, their training. And it's just, look, nobody knows everything. You have to ask for help. You can still right. lead and ask for help. Well, let's fast forward real quick. Cause I mean, you, you served in a very unique role. You indicated that's based on kind of this, this specialized background you had also having gotten your, your law degree. You became counsel to Attorney General Reno. Tell tell us a little bit about that. What were your what were your responsibilities? So let's just back up a little bit about the program itself. I, I was part of the White House Fellows Program, and for those who had not heard of that, it started in 1965 under President Johnson. The idea was, hey, look, we, this country had a number of great leaders. You know, the the Washingtons, the Jeffersons, the Lincolns. Uh, where are they all now? We're a much bigger country now. We have some really smart people, but why are they not serving in government? So the idea of the program was to take people sort of early to mid-career, typically in their early 30s. I was on the older end at 37 at the time. Uh, bring them into government at the highest level, uh, very selective process, and then expose them to that high level of government with working with uh, senior leaders, typically members of the cabinet or in the op executive office of the president. Um, you know, there are a lot of former military folks that came through. Colin Powell was uh, a, a former fellow uh, and many others in, in business and government. You go in and you spend your year, then take that experience and go back to your own profession and then grow within the profession uh, and taking those lessons. Some people stay in government. Some people stay, you know, obviously in the military. Um, I, I was very fortunate. I don't know why I was chosen to this day. Um, you know, here I was a police lieutenant and I happen to be a lawyer, but they they have come. To, I think I was the fourth or fifth police officer in the, that point, 35 year history. And, you know, fast forward 20 more years. I think we've had another half dozen come through, including one serving now. Um, it's something about the police officers that they, they really like because we're not afraid to go in and touch anything. You know, yeah. I, I, I will say this though, coming into DOJ, not knowing anything about the federal bureaucracy, it was an eye opener. Uh, but it also left me with saying, look, if you can survive this, you can survive anything and go back and do anything. <laughs> uh, but anyway, with, with respect to, to working in the justice department, um, there were six staff attorneys working for the attorney general at that time. And, you know, DOJ is such a huge bureaucracy and, you know, with lots of component agencies, a lot of Senate confirmed positions that report up through the top leadership. Um, so you get to exposed to quite a bit. Um, I had a portfolio to include um, the Office of Justice Programs, which is all the grant making authority at DOJ, which back then pre 9-11 was significant, still significant. But, you know, we didn't have DHS back then. So all that grant making came through there. Um, and then on top of that, I also had the Environmental Natural Resource Division. Um, I had a collateral duty with the Civil Rights Division, particularly with respect to pattern of practice cases uh, and, and consent decrees uh, as an advisor to the Attorney General. So that was, a, that was another eye-opener coming from California where law enforcement, which I would argue at the time was much more professional, still is, uh, a lot better policy than some of the other places around this country. I came in thinking that everybody in law enforcement was the same as, you know, across the country. That's just not the case um, yeah. for good or ill. And so anyway, I was had the opportunity to work with her every single day and advise her on things great and small, um, you know, big incidents similar to, you know, well, basically uh, when uh, the um, 
that young child who was found in Florida Straits coming over from Cuba. Um, oh, Ellie Gonzalez. You know, yeah. and, and, and I, I was sort of on the sidelines for that because uh, it was more of an INS, which was part of uh, uh, DOJ at the time and the Port of Patrol and all, you know, all the politics that went into it. I sort of stepped on the sidelines, just kind of watched every day and you know, offered where I could. But at the end of the day, when it came time to take take that child and, and remove him from uh, his great uncle and bring him back to his dad, uh, you know, I was a law enforcement operation straightforward. And, you know, the, uh, the folks at the federal level executed it very, very well. But I had the opportunity to help plan and, and you know, assuage some of the concerns that Ms. Reno had uh, in light of the fact that, you know, she'd been through, obviously, Waco. She'd been through Ruby Ridge and some other things that didn't particularly go well and uh, wanted some reassurance. And I think we did a, you know, you can argue whether the decision, whether they should or shouldn't take to get out, that's a different issue, but once the decision is made to make sure it's done safely. And I think we did, uh, the folks at the Border Patrol did a great job and everybody that assisted did a great job. Hmm. That must've been a high pressure, high <laughs> pressure time. <laughs> yeah. Someday we'll have the opportunity to share the, the, the long version of that story. Yeah, great, yeah, okay. Great moment okay. Well, what was the, uh, from that assignment, I mean, what was your main takeaway? What were the top lessons learned for you? A couple things. Number one, just the professionalism uh, of the, the lawyers and, and staff at the Department of Justice. It's a huge organization that covers a lot of territory. And as you know, having worked in the federal government, um, they're just, they're dedicated people that they're going out, they're not doing it for the money because they can make a lot more money, you know, practicing law elsewhere. Uh, but they're there, they're uh, very much mission focused, like you, you like talk about and uh, and they wanted to make sure that uh, their their work had meaning and it did so that was number one number two is the vast array of things that the doj can do to make communities better is amazing but they can't do everything um mm -hmm. there's a lot of check writing going on i mean i say that with all due respect right. but i would much rather be on out on the street doing things and, and writing checks but if you don't have the checks you can't do the things. so i, I complete respect for everybody that is operating in those atmospheres uh, you know and those environments every day. So hats off to them. Yeah. Well, there's, there's always this tension, right, between uh, what is a federal federal role or involvement in state and local roles. And you'd mentioned earlier uh, your uh, oversight over or, or connection to the um, consent decrees, um, which is probably something that's really kind of timely right now. Um, what are your thoughts around um, the federal interaction with state and local police agencies and consent decrees and you know, what, what, what are, what's, what's good about that? What are things to watch out for about that? So a couple of notes that some people may not realize, but, you know, state uh, policing is a state and local function. It always has been. Uh, the federal role in policing is actually fairly small and their ability to influence that uh, is, and, and historically has not been particularly great pre-1994 with the, the Crime Act. Um, basically, the only way you can control or, or modify police behavior basically is through the condition of grants. And we're seeing that today play out with a lot of the, the um, Justice Policing Act um, and, you know, sort of what the federal government would like law enforcement to do writ large. Uh, and the only levers they really have have to do with with funding. And there are some jurisdictions that say, look, we just won't take the federal money. And we just don't like the idea of the federal government telling us what to do in our state. And I, I do understand that. And I do think that it is, needs to be a state and local responsibility. Uh, that said, this is a big country with 18,000 police departments. I happen to work in one, very proud of it, very progressive. Uh, a lot of these reforms we've been doing for 20, 25 years, but there are a lot of corners of this country that just haven't gotten there yet. And I think there needs to be some, some level of oversight. Now that said, um, 
in the crime bill, you know, the, the statute that allows DOJ to come in and sue police departments, DOJ does not like to sue police departments. I mean, despite what some people say is that's a last resort. What they would like to do is come into departments that are troubled, offer them resources, significant resources to make changes, systemic changes to improve their outcomes uh, for better policing in their communities. That's what they try and do. Uh, over the years, some departments have, uh, and some administrations are, are more prone to use it than others. Uh, and I don't, I don't weigh in either way on on those decisions. I just say that those departments that are in need of help, if they start to resist, there is always the opportunity under federal law to go in and seek a uh, uh, to sue the department. And it happened in Los Angeles before they ended up with the consent decree. I mean, people just you know this is LAPD, and they didn't think they necessarily. And I, I'm broad sweeping statements because I know the people who are involved. And they're all quality people. Yeah. But the mindset was is hey, we know what we're doing here, and and uh, you know who's the federal government to come in and tell us otherwise. That said, once they realized that, look, they would probably lose that in court, um, there are a lot of resources and a lot of good things came to LAPD. I mean, they were already a great department and they're that much better now. They had great leadership with Bill Bratton and many others that understood that, look, you know, you, you have to make some changes. We hate change in law enforcement. Yeah. We do, but we so, hate change just as people, as human beings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but oh, look, I, when you ask me, if, what do I think the consent decrees? I think if properly used, they're very, very uh, helpful to helping communities get to where they need to be. Uh, you just have to be mindful that this that's a last resort. Um, we're hoping that enlightened leadership in law enforcement, and you know that's been, I will say, not where it needs to be. Um, in the big cities, you, you typically get better quality, but in the smaller jurisdictions, it's hard to get people with the, the right experience that have learned theirs and, and learned the experiences, I should say, you know, what went right, what went wrong with other leaders. Um, so leadership development, to your point, uh, is is really important for some of these smaller jurisdictions. So, you know, money provided for that kind of training for leaders to take on the hard situations. They're going to be, you know, if you're a chief, every day is not a good day. Very few days are good days. It's, you know, how do you manage the bad days and, and bring your department to where it needs to be? So I, I like I'm a, I am not going to say I pro con it. The law exists. It's been used effectively. There have been times when it probably uh, has been overused a little bit uh, and then underused in other times. Some administrations think it uh, should just not be used. The previous administration just, you know, didn't didn't use that that statute, and you'll see that this administration, I think, will will be a little more proactive, utilizing those tools to help law enforcement. But it's never been about let's punish these cops and these departments. It's about let's make them better, uh, so they can serve the public. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you. You've again seen, you know, your career, the arc of your career has taken you through multiple different, I mean, assignments and you've, you've had a, a vantage point from different. Well, actually, let me back up for a second, because you studied police accountability um, at New Scotland Yard, uh, through the London School of Economics. Is there anything from that experience that also informs your your take on 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 police organizational reform and and uh, how we need to move forward? So a couple things that I did learn over there. Um, I, I went over expecting one thing and came away with something completely different. Number one is that, look, our police culture is different. Um, you have to understand that the police officers over there, for the most part, are not armed. They're going out in the community in the, uh, the true sense of Sir Robert Peel to be you know peacekeepers. Um, a lot of officers lost their lives because they don't have the ability necessarily to defend themselves like our officers do. So it's a different gun culture. And the community knows that. So they actually do support a lot of their officers because they're taking risks on, risks on their behalf. Now, that said, um, without naming names, but, you know, these are fairly public, high profile 
reports and, and inquiries done over the UK is the investigation of officers that were um, way over the top. I mean, on administrative violence, is one thing if it's a criminal investigation, but um, I, I remember asking the deputy, <laughs> the deputy commissioner of the Met, you know, the, you know, they were doing search warrants. I didn't want to search warrants. I'm just saying they were doing searches of electronic records. They were following cops for administrative violations. And and uh, a lot of it, what it came down to, you know, they're getting access to records that our folks couldn't get without a search warrant. And I said, well, who needs to approve these? You know, do you have a magistrate sign, you know, to, to do this kinds of investigations on the administrative civil side? And they said, no, why, why would I do that? And I started to say, well, it's the fourth and I realized, you know, there's a reason we have in the United States. <laughs> right, right. Oh, they uh, they give their their civil servants over there a lot more leeway than perhaps uh, we do over here. And I won't weigh in on whether it's good or not. I'm just saying yeah. that people are very proud of their police officers over there, as they should be, because they're out there taking huge risks without a whole lot of, uh, of a safety net. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, again, so you you've served in all these different roles. Um, what has been the most fulfilling assignment of your career? So I'll break that down into two different pieces. Number one, the White House Fellowship is you know an opportunity of a lifetime. That's sort of the slogan that everybody uses. If you're chosen for that, you get a chance to travel the world and and uh, meet with leaders and and you know serve at the highest levels of government. So that clearly uh, it's it's hard to to beat. That said. On the operational side, uh, you know, about ten years ago, when I was uh, the deputy chief, assistant chief, and then chief, um, we needed post 9/11 to the need for a nationwide public safety broadband network, which is now known as FirstNet. And I was tasked by the major city chiefs because I knew a little bit more than everybody else. And that's the danger when you know just more than everybody else, you become the expert and you have to to deal with this. But uh, the task was to bring police, fire, and EMS, everybody in public safety, into one room and develop a consensus plan for uh, getting Congress to allocate large amounts of spectrum worth $20 billion plus $7 billion in cash and get them to allocate that to create this network, which we have today. Um, was very proud to work with a number of organizations and leaders within those organizations, the International Fire Chiefs, the IACP, um, you know, the Metro Fire Chiefs, the major city chiefs, major county sheriffs, getting everybody in the same room, getting them on the same page. Um, that was probably the most fulfilling because we actually, after four or five years of work, was able to get that passed and and bring something to fruition that didn't exist before. So again, not something that I, you know, I had the leadership role just because I was designated in that role, uh, but getting everybody together and then some lifelong friends have come out of it. Plus a really important piece of public safety communications capability today is uh, was a result of that effort. So that was probably the one. So that, that raises a question because I mean, I think in any kind of large scale and far reaching um, endeavor like that, there's going to be so many different competing interests. And, you know, what, how did, how did you, because we're talking about building coalitions here to get these things done. What, what went into partnering with others to build consensus and support around the best path forward? That's a good question. I mean, part of it comes down to, look, in our business, the leadership, there's a lot of egos in the room and you just have to check your ego you know, at the door and walk in there and try and find where everybody's common interests are. It's not rocket science, but it really is about relationships. And once people get to realize that you're, you're not trying to do this for any other reason than just get it done, um, they will follow you. Um, you're mm -hmm. focused, you, you're respectful, you're bringing in people who are silent. In any group, there's those who have great ideas to contribute, but they keep their mouth shut. So you have to draw them out. Uh, but all of those things came together. I'm not going to say seamlessly because there were some great arguments in there. Uh, keeping the coalition together 
um, you know, least common denominator at the same time, making sure that everybody got heard and that the interests were addressed. And at that point, once you're in the right and everybody's on board, get out of the way. And I mean, we're, it's hard to say no to public safety when you're you know, up on the hill and everybody's saying the same thing that it's needed. It's not about some special interest. It's about protecting the American people. So I, uh, I think you know, relationships matter. And I think my time in D.C. really helped because I got a chance to meet some senior people in the administration, you know, at that point, 10 years earlier that had cycled through and they were in new positions, including uh, folks at DOJ uh, and then later on at DHS. Um, you know, people I work with back then, I mean, I, I look at, at uh, Lisa Monaco, who just got confirmed as the uh, the DAG, as Deputy right. Attorney General. She was one of those staff attorneys, that, a young staff attorney for Ms. Reno at, at DOJ working on, you know, her portfolio was the FBI uh, and the DEA and, and most of the enforcement components. And she ended up working with Bob Mueller for a number of years and then over at the NSC and, um, you know, national security, uh, the assistant attorney general for national security. So very talented person, perfectly suited for her, her role today. And, um, yeah, it was fun to, to watch and get to know those and work with those people. Yeah. You know, you, you, in your response, you were touching on a number of uh, elements of uh, a team building model that I frequently refer to, which is developed by Patrick Lencioni called five dysfunctions of a team. And he talks about the importance of trust as a foundation. And I'm hearing you referring to just these relationships, these trusted relationships that help to kind of lay the groundwork. And then there's uh, you know, uh, constructive conflict, uh, competitive tension between ideas. I like what you said about making sure everyone is heard um, because that's really important in terms of then commitment because everyone, even, even if something doesn't go your way, uh, you've got to feel like your, your perspective is, is, has at least been evaluated um, if you're going to ultimately buy into whatever that common outcome is going to be. So I really appreciate your response. Yeah. Yeah. That on that one note, and, and I, I call this out just because I wasn't thinking of it at the time, but the uh, the EMS associations, which historically had not engaged at the level we had been, uh, the police chiefs and the fire chiefs certainly uh, were always vocal on everything um, and not necessarily on the same page. It was cats and dogs. Uh, the EMS folks had so much to contribute during the FirstNet discussions and also the subsequent discussions that we're seeing now on NextGen 911 and others. Um, they're a really critical part. And I, I was once you get them started, they'll, they'll open up, but you really have to reach out to them and say, look, this yeah. is something that we need to hear. And the people who are involved, and uh, I'll just say one name, Kevin McGinnis, who's represented that community very, very well over the last uh, decade plus. And there are others, Paul Patrick and others, but you know, folks I wouldn't name, they wouldn't be household names, but they certainly had an impact and still do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, for someone like me, I kind of, I sit here and I admire uh, the, big city police chiefs. I mean, just all of the different factors that you have to manage and, uh, and stakeholders that are part of a process as, as you lead an, uh, an organization in a difficult and challenging mission. Um, one of the things that I'm curious about, I mean, what, what was the selection process like for you to become the chief of the San Jose Police Department? Let me give you a little bit of context before I tell you exactly what it was. Um, I, I came in, I was the assistant chief. Um, uh, my predecessor, you know, he's getting ready to retire and the community had become a little bit disenchanted with some of his decision making and some of his uh, access and, you know, for a variety of reasons, people, you know, he was, he was good. And uh, just, he'd been there for a long time. And I think people were getting a little concerned and tired. Anyway, they were having, you know, nothing on the scale of today, but there were a lot of, uh, you know, protests and whatnot. So I was basically told, um, Hey, look, you're the chief, but we're going outside. 
um, first time since 1976. So um, the community wants somebody different. And look, I try not to take it personally. I spent my career there, but I said, I'll do what I need to do. But please know one thing is that when you make me the acting, I've never believed for those who are saying, hey, look, I'm going to be the acting. You know, if you're acting, act, do it, do the job as if you own the job, uh, do the things that, you know, you know, need to be done and just do that. So the funny thing was, is I didn't, I told them they're going to have to tell me no in a process. So I put in for it, even though I told them I wasn't going to get it. And uh, the process itself, to your point, was fairly novel back then. But we had three panels. First of all, it was very public. Um, it's hard to recruit then and now uh, chiefs from major cities to other cities while you're working. Because once you make it known that you're potentially looking at leaving, your credibility yeah. with your troops and with City Hall all goes down the drain. Right. So it, right. it was always originally thought of, you know, keep the process secret and then eventually got out, but um, you just had to be willing to hold on to as much as you could in case they didn't want you, you could drop out with no no consequences. That said, um, this was very open. Everybody knew who was going to be in there. Uh, I had my name in there, my assistant chief, because uh, I told her she needed to be in there um, just to represent the organization and a couple of outside candidates. They had three panels of 15 people each. One was a law enforcement slash government panel. So we had the DA, the public defender's office, the uh, the chief probation officer, uh, other major city chiefs come into this thing um, and evaluate all four finalists. And, you know, that would take in a couple hours just with that panel of 15. And then there was a panel of 15 from the community that would include all the community-based organizations as well as some of the other uh, uh, neighborhood associations and, and uh, the leadership of those across the city. Um, and then you also had, uh, you know, the employees. So you had the unions and other people that might have an interest in the police department. Uh, the great thing for me was, A, I didn't have any expectations because I didn't think I'd get chosen, number one. Number two is I knew every single one of those 45 people. Oh, they wow. knew me. And I, because I'd worked with them for my entire career. They knew mm -hmm. what person I was. Uh, they knew where I stood on issues. There was no question that I was really there to help people of uh, all communities. I spent a lot of time primarily on the east side of San Jose, which was predominantly Latino, um, just because those folks needed more help than, quite frankly, other places. Um, anyway, so I go through that whole process and I ended up uh, being one of two candidates. One was an outside candidate um, who was an African-American. And look, I, those who read the articles could tell you what happened. So I, you know, everybody thought that was going to be the person. And then all of a sudden, you know, the community stepped up. And I'm talking all of the community, including the African-American leadership, the Latino leadership said, look, we really wanted somebody else. But I think he's the right person for us because we know him and we trust him. And so mm -hmm. that was, you know, I appreciated that, but that's, you know, that's years of work in a community that you believe in. And, you know, I, I would have been okay. I could have retired and gone and done something else, but I was really grateful for the opportunity to serve in the chief role. And well, and technically speaking though, so you have these 45 people that you know, that you have relationships with that, uh, that are essentially endorsing you. Who is the, who is the actual selecting official? And are they just ratifying the decision made by the panels or can they go you know, their, with their own authority. The, the vast majority, of, and it's not the same in every city, certainly, but the vast majority of large cities, you know, certainly in the top 25, top 50, uh, the mayor will make that ultimate choice, usually through a selection process that is either through a commission or a city administrator or something, vetting, making the process, making sure the process is there. But it's really about the mayor or whoever the leadership, the chief executive is, who they're most comfortable and the fit between the, the chief and the chief executive. And that is absolutely critical um, mm -hmm. because if you don't have a good relationship there, it's, it's never going to work. Now, in our case, um, there's two cities that, that are really, and I think Phoenix may be the third, but, you know, uh, San Jose, 
Dallas and I believe Phoenix still have all city manager forms of government where mm. the city manager will make that as the chief executive will make that recommendation subject to ratification by a city council, which is what our case was. So the city manager took the feedback from the community groups and uh, all the selection panels and then you know, their own, own interview and then background. And then uh, uh, then it was up to the council to, to determine whether the, that nomination would, would be confirmed. And I was unanimously confirmed. Um, mm. And again, despite all the there were people that were not particularly happy that another white guy from Santa. I mean, look, it was, yeah. it was just tough, but I, I never viewed it that way. Everybody was trying to make a better community and uh, it just happened to be me at that time. What, so, you know, you talk about another white guy, um, you know, diversity and inclusion, obviously is kind of uh, it, it's, it's always been important. If there's been a particular spotlight uh, that has shined on it in, uh, in recent years, um, what, how did you approach diversity, equity, and inclusion at San Jose Police Department when you were chief? So, look, a lot of the way I operated was informed by Chief McNamara through my entire career. Uh, he was a strong and early believer in that you have to have a police force that reflects your community uh, in order to have credibility with your community. So he took great strides taking over a department that was really had racial issues in the 70s and started promoting people, training people, developing people so that they could be qualified. Um, I'm going you know, to spare you all the details, but one of the things he did is we used to have a uh, policy where, you know, you'd spend a couple of years in uniform and then you go off to some detective bureau assignment and you'd stay there your entire career. Uh, that had two negative and a lot of departments still do that to this day. Uh, the negative impact there is, is that particularly the younger folks, particularly people of color, don't get the opportunity for specialized assignments so that when the time comes for promotional ceremonies or, or processes, they don't have the experience and they're, they're passed over. Uh, Joe McNamara came and said, look, we're going to every three years, you're going to rotate your assignments. So even if you're working a homicide had a five year cap, but, um, you know, a lot of the other assignments, three years and you had to go back and drive a beat car, which mm -hmm. you know, to me was the way, the only way I knew, but it provided me an opportunity to get lots of different experiences. Um, and then it's, and everybody else. And so that you'll have a good cadre of qualified people coming up for promotion that, you know, from, from every background and that really helped. And then from the senior command ranks, Again, unless you get that experience coming up through the ranks, you, you're just not going to be able to ascend to the next rank. So it was really important early on in the department to, to make sure everybody had an opportunity um, to get that experience and then compete. And everybody did mm -hmm. compete. And it was a good group of folks. Um, when I just me personally, it was critical because the women, the percentage of women in the workforce and law enforcement is really small, has been for, you know, we used to be non-existent and it's small and it's, you know, still small, but getting better. Um, I always made it a point. Um, to involve uh, some of the women officers and sergeants into roles that they typically would not have been able, you know, able to, not able to do, but just weren't given the opportunity. So I had both my assistant chiefs, both were, were women, the first two, first one and first, the second one, both went on to be chiefs elsewhere, could have been chiefs in San Jose, San Jose if they had chosen to, um, but they had opportunities elsewhere. Uh, it's really important. It shows, shows the community, number one, that you're, you're looking to be inclusive. You're also getting the perspective of others that you, you wouldn't get. Um, and it sent a message so that, you know, if, if a young female officer coming through the academy sees the assistant chief, the number two in the department, uh, up there to graduation ceremony, whatever, so like, I, there's a path for me to get there. Right. Same thing right. with the LGBT folks. Uh, you know, one of, one of my sisters, she happened to be in that community and, you know, she never wanted to highlight it cause she didn't, you know, didn't feel it was necessary or, or you know, it didn't matter. But I will tell you what, it had an impact on the men and women uh, of that community coming forward. Um, I was able to host an event uh, with some folks. Um, you know, I, I say that now uh, 
our, our current nominee for CBP, uh, Chris Magnus, uh, who's the chief in openly gay and the chief in Richmond at the time. I invited him to come down along with a couple other folks to address my command staff because they didn't believe we had an issue. And it was really clear to me that we did, that people were afraid to come out, you know, and then particularly the male officers. And that just, life's too short to worry about stuff like that. They're all very mm-hmm. talented, qualified cops uh, to have to hide, you know, their personal lives was really difficult. So anyway, I think we did a couple of things that uh, I, I wish I'd done more. Uh, but again, providing opportunity for people so that they can succeed long-term in the department was really important. And I think we've, my own department has done a good job, but I think other folks could t- take that lesson and move it forward. What uh, what are you proudest of in terms of your accomplishment during your tenure as chief? You know, it's it's a sad thing to say, but you have to understand that when I took that job, I knew that we were headed into a significant recession. Um, you know, we had you know a couple thousand employees, you know, fourteen hundred and nine sworn, you know, budget of you know it was three hundred and fifty, three hundred sixty million dollars, whatever it was. You know, mostly personnel. Uh, I was told, look, you're the biggest department. Uh, we're going into a tough time. We're going to have to, A, go through pension reform. So at the same time that my folks were having their bare pension and mine cut, um, 10% pay cuts, uh, which really impacted families. There's a lot of uh, husband and wife teams and, and family members that, you know, that's a that's a double hit. Um, and then we were going to have to lay off over 300 people. Uh, and in the history of, since statehood, where San Jose was the first capital of, of California, in 1850, we'd never laid off a police officer, and we were facing the prospect of laying off 300. And I knew that going in, so I'm not. This isn't a no oh, worry me. This is, you know, what was the best thing I could do is manage that transition. You know, those folks that we knew were going to get laid off literally reached out to chiefs and sheriffs around the countryside to make sure that all of those people got placed if they wanted to stay in the profession. Uh, gave them opportunities for secondary employment while they were there as reserves or something so that they could stay in the business until such time as our budget got better, which I knew it would. It always does for Silicon Valley. So I knew going into this that uh, it was going to be a very ugly period of contraction in the department and keeping everybody focused moving forward, delivering those layoff notices in person um, to make sure they understood you know, it was real and it was going to happen. So let's figure out the best way for you and your family. And then, you know, making sure that the administration that, you know, you're, you're throwing away a lot of money and in investment in training and it's roughly cost about $200,000 to, you know, to find, you know, to hire, to train, you know, to, to equip and deploy uh, a police officer. And, you know, when you start laying off hundreds, you know, you're, you're losing millions in investment. And to the extent you can avoid that, uh, I wish we had, because I don't think we needed to lay off all the people that we did uh, and demote people and all those you know, really negative things. We didn't hire for a period of years. That that was difficult for us as well, because we knew at some point we we're going to have to, and we're now we're facing that shortage. Uh, anyway, there were a lot of negative things coming down the pike. And my my role, and I knew it moving forward, was to keep the place together, keep everybody focused on positivity as much as possible, uh, despite all the pay cuts and everything else. And um, it was not fun. Uh, my period, and you know, it's been said before, is you don't pick the time in leadership, the time picks you. And it mm-hmm. happened to be the time I was there. And I think I was part of the reason why I was there is, you know, to get people through that period. Um, and now we're on a better track, but it was not fun. Was it clear to the rank and file that you were an advocate for them that was trying to lead them through a tough period of transition? Or did you become the face of the policy in the sense that you got blamed or, you know, how did, how did that play out? You know, I, I was pretty proactive and I think, you know, the, and the union knew what was going on. I had regular conversations. They knew, but some of the members uh, who, for whatever reason, are disaffected, they, you know, they'd, 
you know, they would say, Hey, look, you're just part of the problem. And they knew that I was advocating for them every day. Yeah. Um, some people wish I'd been a much more vocal and gotten, you know, into more confrontations with the mayor, but that was not my role. Uh, I, the mm-hmm. mayor knew exactly where I stood to this day. He knows. Uh, yeah. and, and, uh, at the end of the day, he's elected. I'm not, uh, even though I had a great bully pulpit and you've talked about one of the great things being a chief in a major city is you, you have more ability to touch the public than even the politicians do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I could have used that. It would have been really negative, probably would have gotten fired, uh, which probably would have been okay too. But it, uh, look, to answer your question, um, most of them knew exactly what was going on. It wasn't a yeah. city hall, it was the mayor. Um, yeah. But for me, you know, you, you try and walk the line to keep them focused on the future because, look, at the end of the day, this thing is going to blow past. Is there's, there's some damage in the short term and you just have to get through it and focus. Yeah. Well, so you've, you've served as a major city police chief. You've uh, served as a White House fellow. You've had an influential role uh, at the White House, the Department of Justice. Um, you are an influencer in a number of different associations and boards. Um, you t- discussed your role in FirstNet. What is the most important challenge facing law enforcement today? So twofold. Number one, I mean, I think it's really clear that uh, we have lost the narrative on, on policing in this country. And some of it's through poor leadership, quite frankly, of, of some of our police executives, not all of them, but we're painted with a broad brush. So anytime something happens in even small town America, it's, it's broadcast country, you know, across the country and it's paints a broad brush on all of us. That said, um, all you have to do is look at television and see some of the, the outcomes that are poor that probably could have been avoided. Um, and that's why I believe some of these reforms and talked a little bit about it. Some of these things are really overdue. The information gathering and collection and, and data analysis really will help us um, sort of isolate problems that are causing a lot of these bad outcomes. So information uh, is one thing. There's also the training component. We clearly do not spend enough, and I'll compare it to your military career. The military, the U.S. military spends a huge amount of money training all of their people from the enlisted ranks all the way through the officer Corps uh, and regularly, and they spend it because it's critical that you have that training. Once you get through the academy, uh, the in-service training is, is minimal across the country. Some places non-existent. Uh, some places like California is a little bit better than than most, but even compared to when I was starting, we, we don't have the funds to do the training we used to do. So I think it's one of these things where uh, those are all important. Training money, uh, use force policy, um, you know, the leadership training, I think is really critical. There was a period of time when we had the last police commission in 1968, um, you know, basically getting better educated officers and, and providing them opportunities to get their schooling paid for. That's something else I think we should go back to. I missed that on that opportunity, by the way. I really wish it just missed the opportunity <laughs> the LE, uh, the Law Enforcement Assistant Program, the LEAP uh, back in the, the 70s. But uh, better educated officers, I do believe, will end up in better uh, officers and better outcomes. What about um, de-escalation training? I mean, is that uh, something that is feasible? Or do you see it making uh, an impact? Absolutely. No, it's it's part of that training that needs to happen with our use of force curriculum. Um, it is, and, and it can't be just, you know, I, I see a lot of these folks trying to go to uh, virtual reality simulations and things like that. And those are better than what we used to have. But at the end of the day, you need to put officers into stressful situations in training with real uh, situational based um, scenarios where they can be graded, see how they react under pressure. Uh, I tell you, having been through some of those early on, you, you find yourself surprised at you know the decisions you make and the things you do and say. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you do that with with an instructor, a, a positive, constructive instructor, 
um, that helps a lot. And let me give you an example because I thought I think it was on uh, I think it was 60 Minutes or maybe it was CNN. I think it was CNN where they were they had uh, taser training after the the death of Floyd with the taser. You know, it was meant to be. Uh, you know, the officer clearly right. thought she was going to shoot him with a, a taser, right. and then it ended up being not. So they went. Uh, CNN went to Camden, New Jersey. Um, Camden City, and it really went through their training process. And they had an instructor. I don't know who the guy is, but let me tell you something. He was a great. He explained to the to the reporter, but also you could see that's what they would do in their normal training: is walk them through scenarios, let them react, and then critique it. And uh, I like just my hats off to that particular instructor because that's what you want in instructors to be able to walk them through, show them what they could have done differently, um, break it down. And I, you know, I think we need more of that. We need situational, really validated training and it could be for folks who are uh, mentally ill i think that's a huge issue we've always had that uh, that yeah. issue with uh, people who are are difficult uh, you know they have a, some sort of mental disability and they're taking on the cops uh, and it's you know we end up in a, in a bad outcome and the families are unhappy everybody's unhappy um, so i think that's you're right de-escalation is going to be a key part of this this reform and then the problem is you have to have the money to do that training too so you can right. say you need the de-escalation training but you also have to fund it yeah yeah. Well, let's let's come up to the current day. Um, Brooks Baden Moore, you're a partner at, at your firm. What excites you the most about what you do today? The great thing about our firm is, first of all, we have great people and we are focused um, exclusively in the the law enforcement, the public safety, the homeland security field. We represent a number of associations, uh, including the Major County Sheriff's of America and the uh, state criminal investigative uh, agencies, their leadership, uh, the National Narcotics Officers. So similar to law enforcement, when you go into work and you never know, you put on a uniform, you go out in the field, you have no idea what you're going to do that day. You just know it's going to be interesting and you're going to have some fun, uh, you hope, and maybe face some danger. But these folks are out there trying to do the right thing, uh, these organizations, and we get to represent them on the Hill. Uh, we get to you know provide our our feedback and input on things that they might want to consider as they go forward with their agendas. Um, so we're very pleased to work with those uh, associations and honored, frankly, uh, to have the input that we do. Uh, one good example here, we're in the middle of uh, negotiations, the Senate and the House are uh, on this police reform bill. And, you know, we had our touch point for a lot of these associations to help guide them in these discussions of what, what would work and what wouldn't. We talk about those three buckets, you know, you know what are the things we think we can do? Um, and then it's up to the board of those groups to decide what they want to do, but at least we're able to, to weigh in on that, which I think is very valuable. Well, you reminded me. So that second bucket, what are what are some practical things that need to be done? So, you know, information collection, again, is stuff that that's the first bucket right. of making sure you get good data. But then it is, OK, let's talk about neck restraints um, and no knock warrants, things like that. And I think we're getting to consensus on that. Uh, the number of times that I used a no knock warrant or our department did was in you know 30 plus years was was minimal. Uh, but I will say this. Um, you know, if you're going to go into somebody's residence, there's nothing more dangerous than going in unannounced, uh, armed, ready to take anyone who's on the other side of the door, and you don't know what that is. So they're they're a hazardous proposition to begin with. And I think in the Brianna Taylor, we had, look, that probably could have been avoided. I just say that I'm not going to weigh in on what really did. I'm just saying that no knock warrants, I think, have come to their point where that's probably going to be, uh, un unless there's some extreme exigency, they're probably not going to be, um, they'll be pushed in the background. Um, you got issues of um, other no-knock warrants. You're talking, what was the other one? That, <laughs> um, of neck restraints. So, you know, people tell you oh, it's a chokehold. 
you know, I was never trained in a chokehold. It was always prohibited. It was a carotid restraint. It's a technique used to shut up blood flow to the brain that shouldn't do it. If you, if performed correctly, will render the suspect unconscious for a brief period of time enough to get him in custody, get him handcuffed, and then get him back uh, and and uh, make sure they got medical care. But unfortunately, a lot of folks across the country, a lot of officers have used this, and we've had a number of uh, broken hyoid bones and, and have caused death. So I think, unfortunately, the, the neck restraints are, are going to be limited as a result of this. Again, does it change the way we do business? Not necessarily. Um, so it's 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 too bad we will lose a couple of tools that we had, but if, you know, we, unfortunately we've unable to sort of mitigate the downside of the huge downside of a lot of deaths. So I think those are things that we're going to lose out on. And some people are pushing back hard. And I think it's like one of these things where, you know, look, if you put in an exigent circumstance that is just, you know, at the end of the day, if this person's, you don't do something, this person's going to die anyway, then, you know, maybe there's a scenario where you could use it. But generally speaking, yeah. shooting and moving cars is another one generally a very, very bad practice that we have you know, taken out by policy for years, but some folks still allow it. Um, mm -hmm. It's just, you know, you don't want to shoot somebody and then have a, a, somebody going down the street with a basically an uncontrolled missile uh, yeah. where they've been incapacitated. Yeah. Well, um, before we end today, I'd like to just get your, you know, your leadership philosophy, what you would boil down is the key elements to successfully leading. And in your case, you've led a large organization. So, I don't know if it differs based on whether it's a small team or or a large organization, but what are your what are your key principles for taking charge of a team and and leading them to towards an objective? So it goes with anything. And uh, first of all, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you because leadership is a favorite topic of mine. I've studied both academically and in practice, you know, for my entire career because it's so critical to a successful outcome in any business or endeavor. Um, know your craft. For those coming up in the organizations, you have to speak with some authority. So you have to study, you have to learn. Uh, to our earlier point, you can't know everything. Know what you don't know and, and be freely willing to admit that and learn uh, where you can. Uh, the other thing is, you know, whether it be a team, a, an athletic team, uh, a work team, whatever the setting is, uh, get to know your people that you're assigned to. Uh, let them know that you care. Uh, don't be afraid to discipline or at least move them in a direction where if they're doing something wrong that you in a positive way, let them know that there, there needs to be a change um, for their benefit and for yours. Where we have failed as organizations is a lot of times is we ignore uh, violations and we let them grow. And then next thing you know, the person gets fired. And you know, if you were to look back forensically, there's an average of five to seven times in police departments where people, you know, the organization was either on notice or should have been on notice of, of at-risk behavior by the officer. So like I said, know your people, take care of them, uh, give them feedback in a constructive fashion. And then when a mistake is made, own it. As the leader, you mm -hmm. own it. Um, don't be yeah. afraid to do that. Now, it may cost you your job when you do that. You just have to be good with that, uh, particularly in a large organization where you don't know everybody. And that's the other the myth that people have about police chiefs is that you can change a large organization on a dime. Uh, they're like aircraft carriers. You can't. And there will be mistakes made. And you have to apologize to the community. You have to move forward. And some people don't like that, but uh, it's, it's the reality of the situation. So again, take care of people, learn the craft, uh, stay focused, um, and have some fun. Because if you're not having fun doing whatever it is you're doing, uh, life's too short. So uh, yeah. make sure you're uh, and, in tune. And it'll show. It'll be hard to kind of motivate people around you if you're, if you know, uh, having fun can be infectious, yeah. you know, in terms of uh, motivating those around you to, to, to take charge, uh, to, to take, take that hill. So I also like the other point you made about um, acknowledging the things that you don't know, because 
I think the, the some of the, maybe the three most powerful words in an organization can be "I don't know" because it serves as a catalyst for learning, um, and it signifies that it's okay to be human because it's you know it's in in you know responding to that lack of knowledge and what you do from there that creates an agile learning you know an adaptable organization, especially if you can have a culture that that acknowledges that and doesn't punish it. Yeah, one other. A piece that I forgot to include in that is truly developing your people um, mm -hmm. so that they can take on these roles. And a lot of folks are afraid that, you know, there were some great and talented people I work with and people would be concerned about them surpassing them on the way up. Because mm -hmm. um, if, you know, you knew they had the goods and you were sharing information uh, that might cost you, you know, a job or a future promotion. I always viewed it the other way around. I'd rather have really talented people who are smart. And if they got yeah. promoted before me, I was good with that. Um, yeah. But I knew I'd have you know, somebody beside me doing, knowing what they were doing. So I always want to make sure that and, and encourage them to do it. You pay it forward and then you tell the folks that you help yeah. mentor, you need to do this, not only for yourself, but for the organization. And I think uh, we've developed that culture pretty well in our department. Yeah. Well, Chris, where can our listeners learn more about you and Brooks Bodden more? Well, certainly uh, you can go to our website. Uh, it's uh, bbm-dc.com. Uh, it's bbm Brooks Bodden more. Uh, hyphen dc.com and you can reach me if people are interested at all it's c more all one word c-m-o-o-r-e at bbm hyphen dc.com anyway we uh we're involved in a lot of different things so our name comes up occasionally but uh, if anybody wants to contact us for whatever reason please feel free to do so all right well listen chris thank you for sharing your perspectives uh developed during i think what 34 years of, of public service and continued service, uh, and just for sharing just kind of the insights that you've, you've, you've gained along the way. Deeply appreciate you making uh, your time available to be on the show. Kumar, thanks for the opportunity. Really appreciate yeah. it.